Okay. Uh, welcome to today's critical case conference. This is the case I had with uh, Dr. Miller over there. There's a little old lady uh, in shock. Looked very similar to her. This is patient one. We're going to have three uh, patients to discuss. Patient number one will definitely be the most discussion. Uh, patient number one is coming in via Johnson County Ambulance Service, and I was happened to be on with Dr. Miller, a 71-year-old female, MG, unresponsive, coming in by ambulance. Found slumped over in a chair by a neighbor inside the house. The uh, paramedics did manage to go ahead and get a 22-gauge peripheral, but that's uh, literally all they could get. Put her on a high-flow face mask, because at that time, her saturation was down in the 60s, and they are out about three minutes. So for one of the interns, how do you want to prepare the room? Get the cart. Airway cart, tubes. Anybody else? Meds. Get everything ready to go to salvage an airway. That's basically what we did. We had Miller up towards the head of the bed. We had uh, a nurse uh, assigned exclusively to, ha to get a, a second better IV ready. We had the RSI kit in the room, uh, nursing assistant standing by with the EKG machine and an AccuCheck uh, to obtain at the same time. So we get a little bit more history after the paramedics arrive. This is a little old lady, lives independently, uh, found by her neighbor who comes over and visits quite frequently. 911 was called by the neighbor. Uh, initially, the paramedics were able to discuss uh, some, some very minimal stuff with her, uh, like, what's your name? And, uh, uh, are you hurting? And then she went unresponsive. They did an AccuCheck at that time that was about 250, and they really don't know anything about her past medical history whatsoever. Um, and we do not know her code status, too, and that was a big one. Um, we had no idea if she was no code, full code. Uh, so we were assuming that we needed to do full court press. Our initial vital signs, obviously part of the IVO2 monitors. Uh, very hypotensive in the 60s over 30s. We cycled that cuff a couple of times. Heart rate was about 100, give or take. Uh, oxygen saturations, even on the high flow face mask, were 75, and she was really displaying agonal respirations. Uh, and we did get a rectal temp uh, really quickly. That was 38.3. So a real quick brief overview physical exam. This is done in about 10 seconds, standing by the bedside, getting ready to tuber. Uh, definitely obtunded. Definitely toxic, and I wish I, I wish I had a photograph to show everyone what she looked like. Very critically ill. Um, at first, we uh, suspected she may have had a, a intracranial hemorrhage, but pupils were reactive. Airway was patent, actually. Um, she did have good corneals. Trachea was midline, no, uh, no real concerns of tamponade. Uh, heart was tacky, but no murmurs. Respirations were, were labored. Breath sounds were equal. Um, basically, all this stuff you can do just within a few seconds. Uh, looked in the nooks and crannies, perineum, armpits, back. Didn't see anything uh, that was too alarming. Skin was incredibly mottled, though. Uh, I mean, she was quite mottled, especially in the lower extremities. Um, made us nervous as well. But also, no fistulas. Uh, something that's always a good thing to look for uh, in these old folks that come in obtunded. It's like the case we just discussed. If there's a huge pulsating AV fistula, uh, it shifts your differential a bit. So uh, we intubated her shortly after arrival without difficulty. 
We were uncertain as to whatever potassium issue she may have or renal insufficiency, so we used rocuronium and etomidate. This is about uh, five minutes after arrival. Uh, she was intubated. We did get a 20-gauge after about 10 different sticks, but she had awful IV access, unfortunately. We did manage to pull some cultures, uh, send labs, and we also snagged a gas at that same time. And we also placed uh, a STO2 monitor at our right thenar eminence, and that showed uh, oxygen or a, a tissue oxygen saturation of about 58% at that point in time. I'll turn it over to Dr. Dixon here. You know, I personally am thrilled to see this number. I used to, the first thing I would say to the, the residents sitting in a case like this, what's the SVO2? But now we get to go, what's the STO2? And so as we move into this uh, next era of uh, monitoring, hemodynamic monitoring and tissue oxygenation monitoring, non-invasively, we need to talk about and make sure we understand what that number means. Because if I tell you what, uh, show you an EKG with an ST elevation MI, a big anterior MI, you know exactly what that means and you know what you need to do and you know how important it is in terms of the survival of that patient to, uh, to get that normalized, that EKG normalized and that artery perfused. But when I show you this, an STO2 of 58%, let me tell you the mortality of this patient is much higher than that of the patient with the ST elevation MI. And the timeliness of your therapy to get this normal is just as important, in fact, more important if you look at early goal-directed therapy uh, studies. So when you see 58% here, that's the equivalent in your mind of seeing an ST elevation uh, MI times two. So you gotta get that normalized. You can't wait, you can't depend on somebody else. You have to be the experts in resuscitation and tissue oxygenation to get that number normal. Okay, so uh, just the quick definitions, tissue hypoxia versus shock. Uh, tissue hypoxia is a low partial pressure of oxygen in the tissues, whereas shock is a low tissue oxygen concentration uh, because of a low cardiac output. So they're really the same thing, except for you can have tissue hypoxia without a low cardiac output. And you may have in, uh, inappropriately distributed tissue perfusion. That is, you may have normal tissue perfusion and tissue oxygenation in some tissues in patients with shock with other areas that are gr uh, grossly underperfused, and, and that can just be, be just as bad as having global underperfusion of the tissues. Well, as I'm sure you all know by now, oxygen is the key metabolic fuel of life, and uh, in order, everything we do in emergency medicine, at least in, in a critical uh, part of airway uh, management of shock, is to maintain this, PTO2, the concentration of oxygen in the extracellular fluid so that there is a concentration gradient to drive it into the mitochondria. There is no active transport of oxygen from the outside to the inside to the mitochondria. It's down a concentration gradient. No concentration gradient, no oxygen to mitochondria, anaerobic metabolism and lactate production. And although this is the most important oxygen level in your body, most of the oxygen is not out here in the physically dissolved fraction. It is here in the chemically bound fraction on the hemoglobin and the myoglobin within the body. So this is where all the oxygen is, but this is the gradient. This is the concentration. This is the glucose concentration, almost, if you can think of it, that has to drive it into the mitochondria. So if cardiac output decreases, you have greater extraction of oxygen here, 
desaturation of the chemically bound fraction and lactate production. That's shock. So when we think of PTO2, we need to be thinking of this as the equilibrium between how much, what your arterial oxygen content is. So if you don't have any hemoglobin that can carry oxygen, you're going to have tissue hypoxia. What your cardiac output is and what your metabolic demand is, is the equilibrium between these three things on the tripod. So here's your delivered oxygen over here, driving oxygen to meet the metabolic demand and the equilibrium between the two is your, is your PTO2. And we're going to start to talk about PTO2, the best surrogate marker that we have, STO2, uh, in, in a moment. But this is what we're trying to keep normal, uh, normalized. Typically, we extract 25% of the oxygen from uh, the hemoglobin, and we have a SVO2 left over 75%. Everybody's clear on that. Cardiac output goes down, delivered oxygen goes down, metabolic demand goes way up, patient becomes very febrile, tachypnea. Then you're going to have to extract more and the SVO2 is going to go down. Now SVO2 is normally 75%. If you look at the tissue oxygenation, uh, the STO2, it's normally above 80 because it's more of a mixture between the arterial. I'm going to hate this slide now with this pointer. So if low PO2 defines tissue hypoxia, that's what it is, what, uh, what signs and th what things can we look at to get higher? The goal is to normalize PTO2 in patients with tissue hypoxia. Start with altered mental status. I'm going to take all day if I sit with that one. Um, low saturation for arterial oxygenation, high respiratory rate as lactate starts to uh, develop, and that's also an indication of a high metabolic demand. High temperature, every degree Celsius that your body temperature goes up, your metabolic demand goes up by 10%. All of these things are saying there might be tissue hypoxia. This is defining it down here. Low cardiac output, so if you see that on echo, you see a low blood pressure, that's a sign of low uh, cardiac output. High lactate, now clearly there's been some anaerobic metabolism if you have a high lactate. Low STO2. This is where we are with the in-spectra, that if you have a low tissue oxygenation concentration, you should have a low fraction bound, uh, chemically bound to the hemoglobin, and that should show up as a low SVO2. I think that the SVO2 or PVO2, at least now, is still one, uh, one standard above what the STO2 is, but you know, until studies uh, prove that this is as good as SVO2 for early goal-directed therapy, and this is the gold standard, the PTO2, which is impossible to measure uh, clinically. So we have this new device, and this is a, a huge advancement from uh, where we were before in terms of our ability to measure tissue hypoxia. And we have two of these in the emergency department. There's probably four places in the country that now have this capability of measuring STO2 uh, uh, clinically. Minnesota has, uh, is where a lot of this has, has come through. And this device works, the inspector works by looking at the concentration the, the, of um, oxygen on the, uh, the chemically bound fraction. So it illuminates in the skeletal muscle bed, 1.2 centimeters down, it illuminates the, uh, the uh, 
hemoglobin there, which is also some myoglobin mixed in as well. And then it looks for how much of that is absorbed. And just like the pulse oximeter, that's dependent on uh, the, the percent saturation of it with oxygen. So normally, in skeletal muscle on the thinner eminence, 86% is saturated with oxygen. If you have a drop in cardiac output, you will have less of that. If you have a greater metabolic demand, taking more of the oxygen off, it'll start to uh, decrease. So that's what you're getting when you get an SVO2. Think of it a lot like the SVO2 uh, that we measure and in, in, in some places you measure continuously. Again, you're measuring this portion here that's chemically bound, and as it starts to decrease, cardiac output decreases, that will go down. How, does it, how do we use it clinically? If you don't understand the, uh, how the um, spectrometer works, uh, you have to put it on the thenar eminence. It has to be on the thenar eminence because that's where it's designed, 1.2 uh, centimeters depth. There's a whole bunch of reasons for that. Here, and to go this way, you can go the other way as well if you have any reason to do so. So if the arm's broken, if there's a, a decreased vascular supply, I would, not, um, I would not use that extremity. You can put it on the shoulder if you have to, but yet we don't have as great data about what the numbers mean in that situation. But it is still around 86% normally on the, on the deltoid if there's a reason to do that. If vascular surgery here was talking about should we do it to ischemic limbs and determine the likelihood of salvage, which would be a very interesting thing to do. It's not been published on. It's not been done before. But uh, it's $200 a probe, and if you want to, you get an ischemic limb and you want to measure the STO2 on it, uh, feel free to do so. I'll, my treat. <laughs> so save the profile and give me a call and I can get it downloaded. <clears throat> I often will put these on and you have to hold it on the tissue for about 30 seconds before you'll get a reading. And uh, so I'll put it on. If I get a normal reading, I'll, I often won't put the probe on fully. I'll take the adhesive off and... Uh, that sort of thing, uh, because of the expense in part, and because if the patient's got a normal STO2, we probably don't need to continuously monitor it in the uh, emergency department. It's like getting a spot SVO2 back that's, that's normal. But if it's low, then you take the adhesive off and you continue to monitor. So there is no clear-cut indications for when you should use this to guide your therapy. But what we've said here is somebody with a sustained blood pressure less than 90, we want to... Uh, uh, think about it. Somebody with a screening lactate, use lactate as a screening test, not for a measure of continuous therapy. That's, uh, I, that should be greater than four, I'm sorry, that's less than four. And somebody with an SVO2 measured less than 70%. If you have, we put it on cardiac arrest, we put it on some other patients. This lady had a sustained blood pressure less than 90, plus had a lactate greater than four. Uh, it certainly was appropriate for it. But those are the patients you need to be thinking about it. And the other thing is you need to know what to do with the information. If you have no idea what to do with a low STO2, then uh, don't bother putting the probe on because it's just going to add information that won't help you. The MICU has really been a leader in this, Kevin Dorshug. If the patient's going to the MICU, I highly recommend. If they're, if they're sick and they're going to the MICU, that would be a great patient population. If the patient's going to the SICU or the CVICU right now, they're not going to continue the monitoring, so it may not be worth it. And we'll, we'll start to redefine these, con, these criteria soon as we start to get more experience with it. So the reason that we use the thenar eminence is there's not a lot of edema there. There's not a lot of adipose tissue. 
and it's got the right tissue uh, density. All these things are potential confounders. Uh, if you have somebody with a low STO2 and it doesn't seem to mix, move to the SVO2. Put a central line in and throw an SVO2. I really would love to see patients with a SVO2 and an STO2. You really want to, we haven't made a good correlation there, at least in, in human beings. Uh, seems to be correlating well in the pigs. But it's, uh, so we, we do want to get those uh, two measurements if we can. So what do you do with an abnormal STO2 now? You got oxy oxygen driving to meet the metabolic demand. Do you have any idea how long it took a fool like me to get that to work? You're going to have to suffer through it. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> so what can you do to improve STO2? This is what this, you know, don't get the information unless you know what to do with it. And it is this tripod. It's, it's the equilibrium of these three things, arterial oxygen content, cardiac output, and metabolic demand. And so what can you do to improve arterial oxygen concentration? This lady had a SAT of 60% uh, before she got her oxygen. You can increase the SAO2. You can increase the oxygen uh, carrying capacity. So give them hemoglobin. Someday we'll give them other blood substitutes. Give them a, a blood transfusion if they're anemic. Manny Rivers will tell you that he transfuses people with a hematocrit of 30 all the time just to get that increased oxygen carrying capacity to try to normalize oxygenation. Cardiac output. There are four things you can potentially do to increase cardiac output. Increase heart rate. Not a problem in this lady. Tachycardic on arrival. Increase preload. If you don't fill the tank, you can't possibly have cardiac output. So if the tank's not full, then uh, the preload, then you can't, your cardiac output going to be down. Now, this is a big one uh, that often, you know, we see people starting pressors before we're sure that we've increased preload. Uh, I, I like to put people at the head of the bed at 30 degrees, put the vascular ultrasound probe, and look at their IJ di diameter. If the jugular vein diameter is not equal to the carotid diameter, then they're not loaded adequately, especially if they're in shock. Uh, we have a study approved to look at this exact thing and say, does CVP and IJ diameter uh, correlate uh, we, when patients, so we, the protocol is to use, do the ICU where they're measuring CVP, protocol's been in place for a year. We've never recruited a single patient. Any, who's doing the SICU next month? In the next couple of months. If you want a quick, easy publication, all you've got to do is recruit the patients that have a CVP monitor in the SICU, and we'll come up and measure their I, IJ diameter. It's just too hard to do for uh, Kathy and myself and Chris Rossi as well. Easiest thing in the world. Put the vascular probe up. Look at the IJ diameter. Head of the bed at 30 degrees. Protocols are all approved, but uh, it would be an extremely useful tool if we could prove um, what we're already doing. Increased contractility. Um, so I was wondering in that first case what that lady's contractility was uh, that uh, Jenny had done. When I'm thinking about a lady that was in shock, and she really, she probably had tissue hypoxia from a respiratory source, but wasn't quite in shock. She had a normal blood pressure. I think her cardiac output was probably okay, uh, but her metabolic demand, I bet you, was through the roof when she arrived to Kipnik, Breathing, breathing hard, or actually, was she agnol? I, I can't remember when you intubated her. But, uh, you know, initially, people usually have this huge metabolic demand, and even if cardiac output is normal, it's not meeting the demand. A lot of people can't increase their cardiac output by eight, nine times like Lance Armstrong does. You have to, I think it's even more than that, 
you have to be able to increase cardiac output. So even people with a normal cardiac output can have tissue hypoxia because the metabolic demand goes up. Fever, respiratory distress is a huge one to increase metabolic demand. <clears throat> and optimize SVR. This is the one that people screw up the most. You know, I, I was reading through this case and I saw that we had started a levofed drip or at least got a levofed drip ready to go. Uh, you know, what was the indication? What are you trying to do when you add a levofed drip? When you add a presser, what are you trying to do? Somebody tell me. You're trying to increase blood flow. Is that, what, is that correct? Core. Core blood flow. Coronary blood flow, would that be? The, okay, if you say coronary, I think, you're, I think you're right. And I don't think there's any evidence that those, uh, coronary especially. Because if you can increase coronary blood flow, you might get more cardiac output out of it. But if you, but if you add something that adds afterload, and the heart is depressed in its function already, how much extra blood flow are you going to get? Never been a single study that has ever shown that levofed dopamine improves survival in patients with shock. Never been done. In fact, there's several that say it doesn't. Uh, metabolic demand, this is a huge one that we forget, especially in little kids. Uh, decrease the temp. If their temperature is 40 degrees and they have a low STO2, you've got to get that temperature down. This, you, if you decrease temperature from 40 to 37, that's like getting a 35% increase in cardiac output. You've got to think of that. And in kids uh, and adults, reduce the work of breathing. Sometimes 50% of the metabolic demand can be to get the work of breathing. So you've got to think about this metabolic demand side of the equation. It's just as important as what you're trying to do on cardiac output. And don't forget about arterial oxygenation. So this is, these are the things that you can do to improve the STO2. Uh, just in terms of what we were talking about with the um, SVR, if you've got a four-lane highway with dilated arterioles, nice, easy blood flow out, why does adding a vasopressor help, constricting it down to a two-lane highway? And the reason is, if anything, is that you have to have adequate coronary perfusion pressure or the heart doesn't get a, uh, its, its necessary blood flow, and you're going to have a drop in cardiac output. So this is, um, it's, you know, for those that know me, this must be from a rat or a pig, right? So this is rat data, actually. If, if you look at just manipulating SVO2, as you start to increase afterload with a vasopressor, cardiac output actually goes down at a certain point because you made it harder and harder for the heart to contract. As you start to, so if you dilate, so here vasopressors will cause harm. If you let the blood pressure get too low with vasodilators, eventually coronary perfusion falls off and you start to get a decrease in cardiac output and a decrease in tissue oxygenation. So this is what you need to be thinking about when you add your um, vasopressor. So how can you tell if your vasopressor helped? Have to look at cardiac output. What do you have to look at cardiac output in the ED? It must be the right answer, right? I'm, uh, SVO2 would be the best way. Uh, uh, so, SVO2, tissue oxygenation. So watch when you give a vasopressor what's going to happen to tissue oxygenation. Same exact thing in a study to prove that even in patients with a blood pressure lower than uh, from 65 to 85, a mean blood pressure, uh, dopamine added, added nothing in terms of their survival. Oh, I think this is actually norepinephrine in that one. 
Uh, I won't get too much into this. We already did this. So what can you do to improve, you know, ABCC, uh, BA, increase oxygen saturation, increase hemoglobin, increase cardiac output through the four mechanisms we described. Uh, the last thing I'll at least mention is the affinity. You hyperventilate the patient, you shift the oxyhemoglobin curve to the left, and it sucks up the oxygen and it does not want to donate it to the tissues. Uh, if you allow for permissive hypercapnia, you shift the oxyhemoglobin curve to the right, it dumps oxygen in the tissues, and it promotes a higher PTO2, which is our ultimate goal. So, yeah, I think, I think plus it's good for the lungs, so hypovolemic uh, uh, ventilation strategies. Uh, so I don't let them get under 40, and even when they're acidotic, uh, although local, you know, you're looking at an ABG, locally in the areas that are ischemic, there's probably a uh, higher CO2 and a higher, uh, and a lower pH, higher hydrogen ion content. And as an aside, regarding the, the vasopressors, because a lot of people have questioned vasopressors in this lady, um, and as you'll see, she remained uh, profoundly hypotensive and uh, was having spells of bradycardia uh, throughout this. I did not include in this. She would go down into the upper 20s and 30s from time to time. We would occasionally uh, dump our pressures down uh, quite, quite low. And so mostly for the receiving MICU uh, to have vasopressors there not running to use in case she would tank out upon arrival. That's really kind of why we had it. Not so much to use, no, we actually never used it here, but we obtained a, a chest x-ray, and this is actually nine minutes after arrival, uh, four minutes after the intubation here, that showed some low lung volumes, showed our ET tube and NG were in good placement, um, and radiology called us down with concerns of a wide mediastinum. Um, and you might remember, I noted that there was extremely mottled lower extremities, and so with the fever, obviously, we're leaning towards sepsis, but this kind of throws another thing in the differential. EKG is performed, uh, showing it to be in sinus tack in a new brand spanking new left bundle branch block compared to an old one we had from a year before. Uh, so now we have another issue on our hands. Placed a triple lumen, uh, which is actually quite difficult um, because she was very intravascularly depleted. And so there wasn't much of a subclavian vein uh, there. It was fairly collapsed. And so triple lumen got placed, and we also uh, knocked in an A-line at the same time. So our initial gas, uh, now we're at about 20, this time is incorrect. It says it was sent at 150. It was probably sent about 15 minutes prior to that, but that was the number written on the rec. It was uh, 703.59.215 with a base excess of minus 18. So uh, mixed metabolic and respiratory acidosis. Our lactate at that time was 8.5. Uh, shortly thereafter, um, actually it was probably quite a bit after the initial ABG, but we had the empiric antibiotics running at 1352. That's about 25 minutes after arrival in the ER. We were unsure as to whether or not this was meningitis. Uh, we wanted to pick something that would have some good gram-positive negative coverage and, uh, and some resistant uh, strains too. So we picked something that would cross the blood-brain barrier as well, like Rocephin, uh, probably adequate. And we gave her uh, 925 uh, of Tylenol per rectum to help decrease your fever as well. We got four-point blood pressures because that widened mediastinum and the model lower extremities has quite nervous, and they were all diffusely hypotensive without any significant changes. Did a quick bedside sonar to look at our aorta as well, which is normal. Looked at the heart, didn't show any effusion, uh, no fluid in the belly. 
Uh, I didn't write this on here, but there was significant RV collapse at this point in time, too. Um, by the time this is done, we have maybe 1,500 cc's in it. We start to get the labs back. Uh, troponin wasn't positive, it wasn't negative. Uh, myoglobin was elevated, but we don't know how long she was sitting in this chair. INR, again, not, not screaming lab normal, but not negative either. UA, unremarkable. Sent a random serum cortisol, which is actually excellent uh, in her, it's almost 95. Uh, white count was 40,000 with 50% bands, actually. Um, and electrolytes were, have some abnormalities as well. So glad we didn't use uh, succinylcholine. Uh, sucks, again, uh, down for an unknown period of time with the risk of rhabdo and, and hyperkalemia. Um, and you notice the bicarb here of 12, which correlates with our profound acidosis. So uh, we assume that she was compensating for a period of time at home until she just got pushed over the edge. Uh, we ended up drawing several uh, ABGs over a period of time. And like I said, this first one is not really 1350. It's probably about 10 minutes prior to that. We did four ABGs in the emergency department uh, because we had that art line in after the first one and because we were pretty sure she was going to die. Um, she looked awful when she got to us especially with this pH. Um, and you can kind of see the progression of how things went uh, from minute to minute here. You notice the lactate starts off at 8.5, and after this, the resuscitation had started, and after we started giving her uh, IV fluids, it actually bumped up a bit, um, likely because we're washing out end, end metabolic products from the periphery. Uh, and it didn't really start to improve until about 50 minutes after ED arrival. And then it starts to turn the corner and look a little bit better. It still isn't stellar. Uh, you can follow the STO2 here on the side uh, using our, our monitor that we placed on the right thing, our eminence. It started at 58, uh, got up to 64. This is, bear in mind, on 100% uh, oxygen uh, intubated. And it, I don't have a column here for the PCO2, but they were all better than 250. Most of them were between 250 and 350. And so you can see that uh, she's, for a partial pressure of oxygen in the blood, um, there still is some peripheral uh, hypoperfusion. By 50 minutes after arrival, we had it up to 70. And by um, an hour and five minutes after arrival, we had it up to 78%. Base excess was starting to go down. You can see the lactate, even though the STO2 is improving, is still lagging behind a little bit. It hasn't been metabolized. Um, we got a, a little aggressive with our ventilator here at the bottom and, and actually ended up uh, maybe hyperventilating just a little bit with a PCO2 getting down to 27 Here's, here's kind of the uh, uh, progression here. We had the norepi bag at the bedside, not, not just because of uh, uh, our blood pressure, but because it looked like we were having some heart contractility issues given her acidosis, and she would occasionally brady quite far down. It did not seem to be responsive to atropine. We did give her atropine at one point in time. Um, never used it. Uh, never used it. After one liter, we had STO2 up a little bit. Lactate wasn't really improving. After three liters and the antibiotics were in, vent settings were tweaked just a little bit, pH was improving as an STO2, and then after five liters, and that's what she received in an hour in the ED, we had the STO2 up to 78%, uh, her modeling had disappeared and blood pressure, despite uh, widened pulse pressure here at 110 over 50, was, was adequate. So she was admitted to the MICU, uh, obvious diagnosis of septic shock, but also making note of the left, new left bundle, and we did speak with cardiology to make sure they knew that she was going up there, uh, just for them to watch peripherally. Um, 
We did get a head CT after she was stabilized. You don't want to send her over before then. And we also got a non-contrast abdomen pelvis CT. If you remember, her creatinine was uh, 2.3. We were concerned that she was going to need a catheterization perhaps at some point in time because of this new left bundle. We didn't know what other studies she was going to have, and we didn't want to over-contrast uh, load her and knock out her kidneys. Um, so this is what her uh, a slice through her abdomen pelvis CT showed. Head CT was really normal. Did anyone see anything on this that was troubling at all? Fat stranding around the descending colon here. There's some fluid right here. Yep. Um, so this is a non-contrast CT because that's we didn't want her to, uh, like I said, get her kidneys knocked out. But also, um, Mickey was ready and waiting for her. We we kind of thought of this as an aside because we hadn't found a source of the sepsis yet. And so after this was done, we called up to Mickey to let them know that, that this was going to be seen up there and. Uh, perhaps G-Surge should get involved. And there's a little arrow. So her son uh, showed up in the emergency department as well. Um, we discussed what had been going on with him. Uh, now the son uh, did note that she had been wincing of some abdominal pain the night before, but was kind of tough and didn't want to go in to get seen. Uh, he actually saw her uh, five hours before. She was walking around just fine, so this progressed very rapidly. Called the CT scan to Mickey. She went to the OR a couple hours after that and got a subtotal colectomy. Uh, eventually, she did require steroids, even though our, our um, cortisol level was like 95. Um, briefly on pressors, I suspect it was an a, a intern covering the Mickey that put her on it just because of concerns regarding a blood pressure with a systolic 85. So that was shut off after just a couple hours. Lactate slowly improved, but did not normalize until over 24 hours later. And so sepsis associated with lactic acidosis, and I'll go through this quickly here, but uh, sepsis with lactate of 4.0 is associated with a 37% three-day mortality. Um, early goal-directed therapy, of course, is a huge deal. For those who haven't read the article, that's a, that's a must in our field. There's different scores you can calculate, like the Apache 2 and SAPS 2, uh, to try to identify overall mortality. Um, you enter in a bunch of numbers based on lab figures you get back and based on how the patient looks and age. Um, based on both of these, our patient had a predicted mortality of about 85 to 90%. So we use lactates, like Dr. Dixon uh, spoke about, um, can get metabolized slowly, like in our patient. LIDCO is very popular in the ICUs as well, requires a functioning art line, ties up an IV site, um, needs to be calibrated frequently, uh, which ties up nursing time. Uh, SVO2s are great, uh, requires an upper body central line, which we don't always have. And it comes with its own risks and repeated lab draws. And then there's a tissue oxygen sensor that we used. We also used uh, the tissue oxygen sensor in this next patient, which was a cardiac arrest that came in. The 50-year-old male, about, coming in uh, via Johnson County. Um, this is our, uh, our next patient to discuss with the tissue oxygen saturation. This is a gentleman about 50 years old. It was kind of a tragic story, actually. He was shopping out at the mall with his daughter. Uh, he stopped into the bathroom. He didn't come out for a couple of minutes. Somebody went in after him and found him on the ground, uh, unresponsive. And so this is kind of the call we have coming in. Syncopal at the mall. Um, bystanders checked him out. 911 was called immediately. Apparently he had a pulse and he had spontaneous respirators at that point in time. 
When the paramedics got there, he was in PEA. And so they began running the PEA algorithm. Uh, he was intubated in the field. He received two rounds of epi and one of atropine. Uh, apparently got his sinus rhythm back temporarily. And then went into V-fib. He was defib uh, defibrillated times three uh, just prior to arrival. And he got defibrillated into asystole. By the time he got into us, this is about 10 minutes out from, from his uh, arrest. Pupils are fixed. He's unresponsive. Um, he is cold. He has uh, had nothing for sedation. He is not gagging on the tube. No corneals. CPR continues in the emergency department. He's in asystole in our monitors as well. Um, because we knew this was coming in, uh, Chris Rusty and I had a chance to get a bunch of ice bags ready in the event that we did get him resuscitated to ice bag the neck, groin, axilla. Um, we put the uh, tissue oxygen sensor on his thenar eminence, and he had a STO2 of 7% upon arrival. Um, we coded him for a period of time, but we actually got his tissue uh, oxygen sat up to 72% with compressions, which um, I, I often discount compressions, especially when people are coming in that you think are pretty bad off. Um, you know, get the med student up there to do compressions, get everyone in there that's never tried to do compressions, because it's kind of cool. I mean, you see it on TV. But um, little did we know how uh, aggressive compressions could perfuse the periphery. And we actually captured this. And so this is, we didn't get it on immediately upon arrival, but when they were wheeling in the room, and this is about, um, th this is seconds down here, uh, seconds of having this thing turned on. It takes a little while to calibrate, and so we didn't get immediate data until right about here. But uh, for some reason, when we switched this over to, uh, to Dixon's format here, none of the arrows quite matched up. You get kind of what this is trying to show. I had this nice and formatted at home, but it didn't quite work out so well. But uh, arrow one down here is when we took over the compressions. Uh, upon arrival, uh, one of the paramedics was kind of doing the one-arm <coughs> compression off to the side, just trying to squeeze the chest like this. Uh, we took over, we put the tissue oxygen sat on right around here. We took over right here, and uh, one of our techs, Andy Kundi, took over for compressions. If you've ever run a code for, with Andy, this is the person you want to be doing compressions because he takes it seriously. And so, as you can see, yeah, like, that, that's definitely his thing. Within just over one minute, we had the tissue oxygen saturation up from about 7% up to just over 45%. Uh, then we switched compressors. Uh, the next person doing compressions is not quite as skilled. Um, not quite, didn't have quite as much stamina. Uh, not quite as much weight and force to the compressions. We are having a tough time getting them to, to keep the compressions at 100. <laughs> and you can definitely see how the tissue oxygen, tissue oxygen saturation, even over uh, about a minute and a half, dwindles back down to 30%. Andy takes over right here again, goes up to about 55%. Andy starts to get a little bit tired because he's really wailing on the chest. Um, swaps out again with the other person doing compression, starts to dwindle back down again. Uh, of course, this is all academic. This gentleman is fixed and dilated. We were waiting for his daughter to show up. We were waiting for his daughter to show up so we could say, you want to come in here? Can we stop this? This is what happened. Um, Andy takes over again, and gets up to here, and then finally we pass it off to the other individual, it dwindles back down again. And so this is where we peaked, actually, 72, which you can survive off of 72. I, I bet when, when I'm sleeping, I'm sitting around about at 72%. Um, yeah, this is about normal right up in here. So this person without a beating heart, 
when we got them with an airway breathing with good compressions, we got almost to a, a, an acceptable normal person walking around STO2 here. And of course, here's where we called the code and it drops off pretty quickly. Uh, That's notorious on the floor. Uh, the uh, I will discuss one here in a little bit too. But the two minutes to get the ET tube in is unacceptable. The okay, I'm gonna stop compressions, turn around, step down off my step stool. Next person steps back up, stretches and like cracks her knuckles and goes at it. That's too much time too. And that that happens every time. Like it, it's got to be like all right. Now you put your hands on. Now I'm taking my hands off and keep going. Like one one second pause. Yeah, I just observed that code actually. And uh, yeah, they had the, there was a, a line. There was, there was a line of people that were rotating off the compressions, and there was no pause. It was beautiful. Mm -hmm. Of course, you got to have a room to fit all that. Yep. And C3 was the room for it. And we but actually broke the hydraulics on the bed because yeah. the, the compressions were so vigorous. The hydraulic fluid was shooting out of the side of the bed, which I guess is what it took. But um, here, here we broke it down a little bit wider. We, we tore the cuff on the tube, or the tube had a cuff leak, and so we weren't getting very good ventilations no matter what. We were having huge tidal volumes with not much chest wall rise. We suspected there was a problem with the cuff, and so we exchanged it. And you can see just over a couple of seconds here, when we put in a bougie, pulled out the old tube, put the new tube back in, and played the cuff and started breathing again, how huge of a drop you get with your tissue uh, perfusion, your tissue oxygen saturation. This is just a second. Like this is just a split second. However much time it takes you to put in a bougie, pull it out, put the new one back in, and, and the time that compressions were stopped was like eight seconds. Like it was minimal, and that's how much everything just crashed. And then it takes us a while to get back up. Um, and now what this tells us is, I mean, th this is at the tissue. It is not telling you what the coronary loss and the coronary perfusion pressure and uh, what the heart lost in that time too. So last patient, just on, on compressions and ACLS, just because I thought this was great, and a lot of you know about this one already, but uh, it was a V-fib arrest about a week ago on the cardiology floor. Uh, it was me and Caves, or uh, Caves and myself, and um, Adam Jackson, uh, uh, the trauma surgeon intern that was on at night. Um, this guy was in V-fib arrest. I'll have the code sheet up later, but this guy would uh, was unresponsive. We got up to the floor. During compressions, uh, he would arouse and be able to respond to you or as much as a person can respond with an ET tube in place. These are the meds he ended up getting. Um, he got three boluses of lidocaine because he's in refractory V-fib. It would not break. Occasionally, he'd get a shock and he would go into a sinus rhythm for about five seconds and he'd go back into this. We didn't know what was going on with him, so he ended up getting two boluses of calcium chloride. Three milligrams of epi, milligram of atropine uh, for a brief asystolic episode. Uh, two amyoboluses, a procainamide bolus, and a drip started finally, and that's kind of what did it. Uh, and then the coup de grace, 38 defibrillation attempts, which uh, is, yeah, uh, that was pretty profound, especially when you have a gentleman in V-fib that is alert and interactive while you're doing compressions and you tell him you're going to shock him again to try to get him out of this and he rolls his eyes and sticks his tongue out and and waits for it um pretty unpleasant 
but uh, we did give him a little bit of verse set, and I actually talked to him yesterday. He doesn't remember that, thank goodness. Here's the code sheet, and I know you can't see this here, but um, here's the time the code was called, 1953, and here are the defibrillations. Here's one of them, one of them. It says times 38 total because they stopped keeping track. Here's, this represents four of them. This represents three of them. Here's all the shocks. Here's sodium bicarbonate. Here's, uh, here's calcium chloride. Um, these are all the boluses of uh, uh, antiarrhythmics. Uh, and the comments, uh, you don't even want to read those comments. But it also continues on to the next sheet here, too, uh, if I can get it to come up. Yeah, he ended up getting, here, ended up getting four grams of mag, <laughs> four grams of mag, 1,500 milligrams total of procainamide. We, we, we had asked him during compressions, um, and we got great pulses with compressions. We actually got his sat up. We actually got a blood pressure with our compressions, which I thought was pretty <laughs> impressive. But we asked him uh, if he wanted us to stop, and he said no. We kept on going. He got. He he did not have a perfusing, uh, heart automated or heart generated rhythm for an hour and fifteen minutes until we shocked him, out of V-fib long enough. And and it, he we shocked him out of it. He maybe was sinus for thirty seconds. Went him again. We shocked him again. Then he finally stayed in. They took him emergently to cabbage, and he got a three vessel cabbage in the middle of the night, which I thought was pretty profound. Um, his. He had, you know, profound ischemic coronary disease beforehand. So his EF was terrible. It was like 35%. His EF after this code was like 33%. So he didn't lose anything. His only complaint uh, was that it kind of hurts right here. And, and he did get a pretty bad burn from our defib patches. But uh, he, his appetite hasn't returned, but he told me he needed to lose weight anyway. So <laughs> I, I just talked to him. And he actually arrested again last night and got a precordial thump. And, and he... Uh, he was in VFib for about uh, a minute before he got a precordial thump. And when the guy came up to punch him in the chest, and I don't know who this was, is, is delivering this as opposed to a shock, but he said, hey, 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 <laughs> whack. <laughs> and then, uh, so, <laughs> so over the last three weeks, this guy has gotten over two and a half hours of CPR. He's broken three ribs, but he still is doing okay. And, and he still forgives all of us for doing that to him. So, yeah, he's, he's getting an AICD now. Yeah. But um, he, he said it felt like Mike Tyson punching him in the chest. That's what he said. He's 63. Nice. I've been working up. Yeah, deliver it. That is beautiful. Nice work. Nice work.